Hello, you found the supplemental material episode for our conversation with Dai Shizuka. If you're looking for the main episode, go back to your podcast feed and choose the episode titled Dai Shizuka on Sociality and Space Use. You can get in touch at animalbehaviorpod at gmail.com. We're recording this in April 2021, and you've recently received tenure. So congratulations. How are you feeling? Thanks. Yeah, great. It's a relief. I'm, I'm excited to um, receive the news at a time when I feel like maybe I can celebrate outside <laughs> with some people, with some close friends. That's all I wanted. <laughs> Trying to figure out, yeah, what's next? How am I going to use this? <laughs> so do you feel like now you can ask new questions that you are maybe are riskier that you feel like you couldn't ask before? I don't know. I don't feel like I've felt that constrained to begin with. <laughs> um, and, and lucky enough, I guess, recently, you know, in the past few years, I, I think the, the main thing has been trying to grow as an advisor the the real transition I think is is now people expect me to know what I'm doing in terms of that. <laughs> I think you know that's that's kind of the new and exciting challenge. And so these days, a lot of my new ideas come from my students, um, and so you know I recruit students who are talented and 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 have some overlap and interests, but then I encourage them to really pursue something they're passionate about some questions that they're really curious about which right it's never exact overlap of of how i've been thinking about things so it's a little uncomfortable at the beginning sometimes because i think okay i haven't really thought about that i don't know much about it or i don't know how that's going to work but then you know just try to trust the student trust the process and usually it pays off or has always paid off in that it brings new ideas, new challenges, and it expands the, the scope of my work um, with each new person that comes, comes through the lab. Yeah. You come back and you find, you know, sometimes, yeah, all your flockmates are around. Um, and so you just do the thing that you were doing last year. But imagine you uh, another year you come back and most of your quote-unquote friends from last year don't come back. Then what do you do, right? And that, that seems to also change kind of how individuals um, move around in space. My, my better half is saying we don't have time for me to ask this question, but I have to ask it now <laughs> that you use the word. Uh, uh, are they friends? That's I mean, what are friends, right? <laughs> well, so I guess I would say that, that friends are, you know, uh, long-term social partners who, you know, provide both support and resources to each other, as well as, you know, the, the removal of those individuals creates stress and uh, emotional distress. And, and so, like, for example, in primates, I'm all aboard like the call call primate friends friends train and I know other people are, are not but you know in terms of at least in primates they're definitely homologous I think to human friendships mm -hmm. and so I'm just I've been kind of obsessed with this idea recently about how different people who study animal behavior think about things like friendships and emotions etc and so I'm curious you know if if friends is just a convenient analogy or if you think that it it actually applies 
Yeah, no, that's a that's a great yeah, that's a great question. I I I honestly I don't know how to tackle the emotional aspects of things um, in birds. I feel like that's a little bit outside my wheelhouse um, right now. I generally I am more of on the spectrum of like how worried I am about anthropomorphic um, terminology. Like I would say I'm not, I don't have a big problem with anthropomorph anthropomorphism. Um, to me, it's just recognizing actually that we are animals um, and that we might not be biologically special. And so if something applies to us, like why not other animals? Um, and so, you know, it. I'm not I'm not the type of person to to die on a hill for semantics. <laughs> um, I have no problem calling them friends, uh, and if I'm going to use that in a scientific, you know, paper where I have to defend the term, like on uh, data grounds. Um, Maybe I'll be more careful, but, you know, probably just want to have a good operational definition of it, right? Mm -hmm. So my operational definition of it might be a little bit less about emotional aspects of it, but, yeah, maybe more about, like, sets of individuals that affect each other. So the presence of one affects the behavior um, of another much like you know, in communication, when a signaler signal modifies the behavior of a receiver or something, and then I like I like kind of where you go with your definition of like the removal of of the other um, kind of creates some stress perhaps or changes the behavior of the other. Um, so you know, it's probably a broader definition of friendship than I don't know most people who study friendships would like to use <laughs> but I don't know why not uh, I had a high school English teacher who defined friends he said how many friends do you have and people would always say more than he felt they had because he felt that a friend was someone who if you called them at two in the morning and said I need to be picked up at the airport shows up and picks you up at the airport right. <laughs> and yeah the, and <laughs> That's a pretty narrow definition of friendship. Yeah. Well, I, I don't I don't want to digress, digress too much, but I, I think you know I always think about how my how I study biology is affected by how you know my own life, uh, and so I think you know that actually um, makes me think about this. I, I always had this. So I moved around a lot when I was a kid. You know, I, I grew up in I was born in Japan. I grew up kind of going back and forth between Japan and the U.S., which meant friends i had like i couldn't rely on like temporal longevity of friends friends because if i just narrowed my criteria of friendship to people who i knew for 10 years like i had none of those people because i never stayed in one place for long enough but my definition of friendship was more often like all right like if i hadn't seen the person for three years and i just called them up like would i you know would they be happy to talk to me well that's a friend <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah you know and so 
maybe that's maybe that plays a part. Like I like the broader definition of friendship because to me, growing up, if I if I didn't define friendships in a broader way, like I would just not have any friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's take a step back or upwards. I don't know what the right preposition is for, for a moment to um to species recognition. Work, work out of your lab has shown that nestling golden crown sparrows are hyper attuned to species differences in song between golden crown sparrows and, and sympatric white crown sparrows. So talk a bit about those playback experiments that you all done to, to show how very young sparrows are discriminating. Yeah. So, um, you know, like I mentioned, I started working with golden crown sparrows um, as a grad student in, in Santa Cruz in the winter but I had long had this dream of studying them also in the breeding season um, and uh, been, was mulling over how I was going to do that. Um, and one idea I came up with, actually, I had a chance to teach ornithology as a grad student um, when my advisor took a sabbatical and took over his class. And um, so there I was teaching about song learning and song recognition. I'm using white crown sparrows as a model system, um, kind of classic work by people like Peter Marler and, and his lab, um, and Luis Batista and, and others. Um, and they're all doing it in the Bay Area, uh, not too far away. And so that was really fun to think about. And then I recalled I, ha I had spent a season early on in grad school up in Alaska, seeing if I could study golden crown sparrows in the breeding season. Um, didn't pan out. It's a whole story for another time. It's, um, I can talk about that forever too. It's fun. But um, one thing that I had taken away from that field season is that um, golden crown sparrows and white crown sparrows are sympatric, syntopic in that when they co-occur, they, they co-occur mm -hmm. in the same habitat. And so as I was teaching about song learning, I realized, um, okay, so in nature, like birds hear all other birds, um, you know, as a nestling and a fledgling, uh, all the other birds in the neighborhood. And so when they're close, rel you know, closely related species are syntopic, like they're hearing each other's songs. Their neighbors are both species. And so you have to be able to actually know what songs you want to learn before you learn it. Or otherwise, you're going to learn all kinds of wrong songs, right? It's either that or you learn all the songs. Um, you don't know what songs you're supposed to retain. And then later, like, you, you know, adaptively, like, forget some of them, which is also possible, too. And, and to some extent, they do do that. But um, So what I started with, I kind of just... Um, documented all the variations of golden crown sparrow songs um, that are out there in all the populations and then figured out what features uh, what whether they're the songs of golden crown sparrows and white crown sparrows are systematically different um, they are and in, in, in certain features and then um, i had this idea to try to do a playback experiment to really young birds, um, which people had done with white crown sparrows in the lab, um, but never really in the field. I didn't know if anyone had done actual playbacks to nestling birds um, in this context before. And so um, I got 
I was lucky enough to get like a postdoc fellowship to go to University of Chicago, and I was in Trevor Price's lab, and I pitched them this idea, and uh, said, "Yeah, that sounds cool," and, and and let me go and try this out. And so I, yeah, um, and it works. So what happens when you play a song to nestlings? Um, and, and I knew that this is what white crown sparrow nestlings do: is that they they can chirp back to some. They'll chirp back to some songs, but not others. Um, and so really simply what I did was take golden crown sparrow nestlings. Um, I would go and find their nests and then wait till they're old enough um, and then play back a song. Then they'll chirp back to golden crown sparrow songs. And you play a white crown sparrow song and then they won't chirp back to white crown sparrow songs. And that happens about starting around like seven days old. Um, after hatching, and they fledge at about 10 days old or so. And so um, that experiment worked. It was really fun. Um, figured out how to do it reliably. And then my first PhD student, Emily Hudson, um, kind of took this on and, and took it to another level by dissecting different song elements. And we figured out that um, you really just need like the first note, uh, the introductory whistle, which is really important um, in in these these birds, and you just play the first note, and the birds can tell. So the golden crown sparrow chicks will um, chirp back to golden crown sparrow whistle, but not to white crown sparrow whistle. And so, um, yeah, that that's basically mm-hmm. that's the whole <laughs> that's the whole story that I just told you, but. Um, yeah, it's just, it's really fun. There's so much potential, um, and, and other people have started doing it. Um, uh, David Weecroft, who was a grad student in Trevor's lab when I was a postdoc there, took this idea and um, did it with like flycatchers in Europe where they can do even cooler things. Um, and so I, I, want, I want more people to do this with every bird that they have <laughs> um, as nestlings. Just start playing songs to them and see what they do. Because I think we'll learn so much. Well, so that's interesting. That it, it flows into this next question I have, which is, you know, I, I want to close out this section by thinking about the evolution of recognition. Because, of course, all species need to be able to identify conspecific mates. But there's quite a lot of variation in terms of how important discriminating between closely related species is going to be, depending on the density of syntopic species. And, and, and similarly, as social systems vary, it seems like there's going to be a lot of variation in how important individual recognition is going to be. Um, and, and so heightened species discrimination and individual recognition, right, seem like cognitively related processes. And so I, you know, I'd love to hear you speculate about whether those two phenomena co-evolve, whether you think they co-evolve. What's your reaction to that idea? Yeah, like how recognition works at all these levels and whether it's the same process or distinct processes. It's like a, yeah, it's a really, it's a really classic and interesting question. Um, Let's see, where do I stand? I, it's like hard for me to remember like where I even stand on this right now. <laughs> so I'm trying to make sure I don't like uh, contradict something I've already written in a paper. <laughs> 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 um, 
Okay, well here here's the, here's how I tackle this this question. Okay, so so think about this. Um, there are recognition system is going to be an inner inner interplay between like something whatever can be encoded in your brain um, and passed down, plus whatever you can learn um, through experience. Right. So I'm fascinated by that process. Like there's a finite number of let's say songs that you can sample in your life before you have to start making decisions about how you're going to respond to those things. And so in thinking about species that have different dialects across regions, like you don't, you can't sample all the dialects of your species and come up with like a universal understanding of what your species um, songs are going to be. Like you just have the few individuals that you've listened to early in life to go with. And the rest of it is like this process of generalization that I think we have no idea how it works. For example, you know, have a baby and they, 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 they look at a book, a cartoon of an elephant and they see that's an elephant. Then at some point in their life, they come across a photo of an elephant and they somehow understand that that is also an elephant. Which mm-hmm. really like looks nothing like the cartoon version of an elephant in your book, right? And that's like to me the essence of generalization. Like you pick up on some features, and then you look at something else, and you kind of figure out that that is the spectrum of what an elephant can be represented as. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, us being animals, like other animals, must do something like this, where they have some sample of, of things that they, they decide, okay, these are things I'm going to care about. And then they apply it to other sets of individuals or songs or whatever. And they're somehow able to say, okay, that's within the range of what I'm going to consider a species or what I'm going to potential, potential bait, right? And so I guess my view of it, going back to your question, is like, I'm not sure how to categorize the the individual and you know kin and species recognition on a spectrum because I think they're all versions of this kind of process and mm. and depending on the context there's perhaps some threshold at which they make decisions about one thing versus another and and for us we interpret it as species recognition or kin or individual because we have the information to make that distinction. You know, growing up, they don't like when I kind of heard about what scientists did, it's never really presented as a creative job, but it's like 98% of the success comes from creativity. Yeah, I I definitely agree. Um, And the more I do it, the more I realize, yeah, the, the, the best science i've done is just when i've put it's like when i've put puzzle pieces together in a way that people haven't thought of before um and that i hadn't thought of before and so um i think ecology in particular doesn't lend itself to very like formulaic ways of doing things because nature doesn't work that way and and ultimately that's what we're pursuing is like assembling the puzzle that's nature <laughs> um and and so it kind of has to be creative um, nature wouldn't allow us to do it any other way <laughs>